0: So we've embarked upon this study in Esther last, last Lord's Day. Was it last week? Yeah. And uh, I'm, I'm losing track of time as well. <laughs> um, this is actually, this is, so we're looking at Esther a bit in the sense of, in the wake of our study about a year ago through Ezra and Nehemiah, and we talked about them as a, a remnant of the Lord's people rebuilding in the land. Now we're looking at a remnant of God's people, like Daniel, so Esther, who are yet in exile, the remnant that is, oh, you might in some senses say, resisting the world or residing in exile. And so that's kind of been our our approach this time is through Esther. Xerxes, we were introduced to in the first chapter, and he has been glorying in his pride and his possessions, uh, and he's very possessive of that. And exerting his power. We saw at least three um, vices in him, Uh, avarice, anger, and authoritarianism, very prominent in his rule and in in his way about him and and those around him. And we notice that those around him are able to manipulate him a bit uh, because of this uh, swinging passion uh, that so controls him. Now, the events of chapter 1, and the events of chapter 2 happen about four years apart. Maybe you caught that. Uh, Now we're in the seventh year of His reign. Uh, We started in the third year of His reign. So, again, it's easy to read the Bible kind of too quickly uh, and too flat in terms of the time that transpires. Four years of this has gone by. This is enough time for... As a Hesuerus, or also known as Xerxes, to have tried to conquer Greece and fail and come running home with his tail between his legs. He's pouty in a bit. And in a sense, uh, his conquest in war uh, is now going to be replaced by his conquest for women. And the excesses of wine, uh, in the first chapter, we will see his excesses in his relationships with women. Not a good situation. This is the setting that we come into chapter 2. Now, chapter 2, I'm entitling a rising star. And we think of that maybe in terms of actors and uh, musicians and artists, you know, up and rising. It can be for any, anyone exper- uh, ex- gaining expertise in their field or their craft and their rising star. Um, but I wanted to also just quickly look at how does a, a star, a cosmological star, uh, get birthed? And my, my layman understanding is that through intense heat and pressure, a star is formed. And they, 90% of its existence is in midlife, they say. It has this rather 10% quick start and 10% fizzle out. Uh, but it comes under this intense heat and intense pressure. And that, too, we will see fits the analogy of Esther. There's a lot of tensity, a lot of pressure, a lot of heat uh, in the politics and in life circumstances for this rising star. Well, we'll look at this uh, narratively in a couple of movements. The first movement's in verses 1 to 4. We'll call this the proposal. I don't mean this in the wedding proposal, although I suppose it kind of is, but this is the proposal of the, uh, the counselors, the advisors to the king. They have this idea. Now again, uh, Xerxes has come back from the battlefield, kind of put out, defeated by a, a small band of Greek Spartans. And here they come back uh, Herodotus is a historian that writes about this this time period for Xerxes, and uh, he says that Xerxes was known to have. He uses the word "dallied." We translate he dallied with the officials' wives. Now it could be that part of the proposal here is. And I'm sorry, that's, I'm just quoting Herodotus. Part of the part of the situation could be the officials are just trying to get him away from their own wives. But it could also be a bit of ambition because the queen, it seems, in these Persian situations typically would come either from another royal family or from among the chief advisors surrounding him. So it could be that, that uh, the advisors are, are thinking maybe he'll pick someone from my family. So this kind of intrigue is going on and and happening. He misses his queen. He's remembering his quick reactions, and he misses his queen. He, He has a lot of people around him, close, near, counselors, advisors, as well as womanly companionship, but he doesn't have a queen. I won't go necessarily into the psychology of the king, but the king needs somebody that will listen to him differently than everyone else. Someone that will understand him. He misses his queen. If nothing else, Vashti did understand Xerxes, good or bad. He's finding that the counsel of his advisors is proving dissatisfying. Their worldly counsel is bringing regret to the king. He regrets what he's done. When we make poor decisions, quick decisions, passionate decisions, they often will come with regret later on. We see this. Well, notice that these decisions are also often based on superficial criteria. You see what the three criteria are for the queen? Young, shapely, and a virgin. Those, that's the criteria for the queen. Um, not agreeing with that, but that's what it is. It's bad decisions elevate superficialities, external things, just surface things. And that's what's happening here. The whole empire seems to run on the superficial things of what is seen, not the, the substance, the core of who a person is at their being. And poor decisions don't look at people as people created in the image of God. Not only that, but poor decisions further bring oppression, don't They? I mean you see this abduction you might say of of these ill-fated young women from all 127 provinces of the empire. Uh, this this is not a a good situation and you wonder well This is the background. This indulgence, this opulence of the Persian Empire is the background to what's happening in Nehemiah chapter 5. When the people have been so harshly taxed that they're now selling their own relatives into slavery to be able to pay the taxes. And where are those taxes going to? This very kind of thing. Oppressive, authoritarian leadership Hurts people. It denies that they're created equally in the image of God. And people who know how to manipulate those very powerful leaders um, bring a government that doesn't get ruled by law and justice, but by the selfish, aggrandizing needs of the powerful. This is what's happening. Most of the girls would spend one night with the king and then, as we read, would then be transported from one area of the palace to another area of the palace for they changed. Now they're concubines. And most likely, given the number of them, would live the rest of their life isolated, alone other than with the rest of the concubines. Now, I suppose that some might see that as as a step up from the slums, but it is not a purposeful and meaningful life for someone created in the image of God. But it isn't just a, a, a sexist thing going on here. This this was the attitude of the empire, the imperial realm in every area of life. And it wasn't only young women who were, who were targeted for things like this. Again, Herodotus writes that 500 young boys every year were conscripted into the civil service, made eunuchs in order to serve at the king's discretion. So it's male and female problem within this. They, they had the, the king and the leaders have no regard for the people. Poor decisions bring regrets. They elevate superficialities and they bring oppression. And that's our first, our first little vignette in the narrative. The Next begins in verse 5. Verses 5 to 7. Let me reread this. Now, There was a Jew in Susa, the citadel. Notice it says the citadel, not just the capital, not just the city. I I get the sense that that Mordecai is close in physical proximity, um, perhaps even part of the civil service already. There was a Jew in Susa, the citadel, whose name was Mordecai, the son of Jair, son of Shimei, son of Kish, a Benjamite. "...who had been carried away from Jerusalem among the captives, carried away with Jeconiah, king of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had carried away. And he was bringing up Hadassah, that is Esther, the daughter of his uncle, for she had neither father nor mother. The young woman had a beautiful figure and was lovely to look at, and when her father and mother died, Mordecai took her as his own daughter." We, we've been all in pagan Gentile territory up until this part in the story. And now the scene, the camera moves and shifts to this, uh, this Jewish family. And we'll have to back up a few slides there. <laughs> Unless you really want me to be done. Okay. The, this is our participant. Guess who's getting abducted? This lovely young lady. Now, Mordecai and Esther. Esther is the only one in the book that has two names. Um, Hadassah, which means myrtle flower, and Ishtar. Now we say Esther, but it's the Hebrew alliteration of the Persian goddess, Ishtar. This just is unsettling. You know, they don't have good Hebrew names. Mordecai is named after the, the chief uh, god Marduk. Marduk and Ishtar. What's, what's happening? What's going on here? This, this is, uh, and why are they here? You know, we've been through Ezra and Nehemiah, and about 50 years ago from this vantage point, f- so far 50,000 Jews have left Persia, Babylon, and gone back to the land to rebuild the temple and the city. 50,000. Why are these still here? I mean, we were just wondering what's happening in this story. Some, it's, something isn't right. Things aren't the way they're supposed to be. I wonder I wonder in this setting, how many of those young women tried to run and hide? I wonder how many were suddenly married to the most available guy rather than spend their life in the harem of the king. And with that, then why didn't Esther? I don't have answers to the question and I Apparently, the author doesn't want to give us the answers to those questions. He wants us to live in this tension. How is it to live in exile? How is it to live in the world and not of the world? And we're left with this. How do we make our way through this? Now, just a historical reference again. uh, There is a tablet that was discovered in Persepolis in 1904 that has the name Marduka as an accounting official who would go around um, making his surveys and doing inspections. And I mentioned that. It doesn't necessarily give us an application other than it is a blessing when God reveals archaeologically and historically the veracity of his word that he's given to us. And sometimes you may have these conversations with folk out there and you know, they'll, they'll say, oh, the Bible contradicts itself or it's made up all these stories or fairy tales. And I, well, you just point them to historical pieces like this. Hey, what about Marduka? You'll probably stop them in their tracks and they won't know what to say, which is okay because you won't know how to go any further either. <laughs> Neither would I. But know that, that these are real people. Herodotus is writing about this. They found a tablet in 1904. I mean, this is like Indiana Jones kind of discovery stuff. This is exciting. This is the Bible, and it's real, not just Hollywood. This is real. So, But with this, notice, Mordecai has a distinguished family. He's a Benjamite. He's related to King Saul. And in fact, his family was of such notability that they were deported along with King Jeconiah before the main uh, onslaught of Babylon to Jerusalem. They took the cream of the crop away earlier, sooner, like, like Daniel and his three buddies. They took the best, took the royalty, and conscripted them into the royal service. The best not only of Jerusalem and Israel, but of all the lands that they had conquered. It was a very eclectic and cosmopolitan international kind of setting. But Mordecai has a distinguished family, and maybe this is part of the answer why he's still there. His family had been pressed, it would seem, into some kind of service. And maybe this is an answer why he has the name Mordecai, like We know Daniel as Daniel from the book of Daniel, but his Babylonian name was Belteshazzar, right? And his three friends had Hebrew names too, which we don't really remember. We know them as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They're they're Babylonian names. They had two identities. It could be that Mordecai is named for this reason. We don't know. But know this. The poor decisions of other people affect you. And bad decisions by other people can place you in your own conflicting circumstances. Mordecai and Esther are in a conflicting spot. And it, they're, they're even in this country at all because their ancestors disobeyed the Lord their ancestors desecrated the temple in Jerusalem long before the Babylonians ever came. And because Israel had desecrated the temple by worshiping other gods, the Lord removed them from that spot. The Lord guarding His own holiness, guarding the place of His name. And He disciplined His people. And that's why they're in exile. And the bad decisions of other people can place us in similar conflicting circumstances. Also, their their descendants didn't leave. I don't know if they had the opportunity or not, but they didn't go back with Zerubbabel. They didn't go back with Ezra. They didn't go back with Nehemiah. They're still in the land. Well, The narrative goes on, verses 8 to 15. And we've read about all this treatment and all this. We'll call this the pageant, but don't think of this as some wholesome contest where the young women are happily competing to become Mrs. Persia or the first lady of the kingdom. No. Well, here's this guy, Hegai. This guy, Hegai. He has a eunuch conscripted into the service, and because he's a yungic, he's able to to take care of the women without any hanky-panky going on. And um, apparently he's good at his job. Uh, He's preparing the women for their time with the king. And 12 months of spa treatment. Well, don't think of it quite like spa treatment. I mean, these gals are coming from 127 different governorships around the empire from all different kinds of life and and this is ancient life so a lot of this is is fumigation mhm it, it's not just smelling pretty i mean it, it would take you 12 months to get to that point i don't know they're all from different circumstances all kinds of backgrounds it's not, they're not, they don't have nice, healthy environments like we're accustomed to in our Western civilization and society. Some of this is, is, is very pragmatic. But obviously, if they're soaking in ointments and spices that long, I mean, their pores are just going to exude the beautiful aromas. Again, Hegai, Hegai is mentioned in the histories of Herodotus too. This is a very historically documented narrative. It's fascinating. Can you imagine being a perfume maker that has a government contract? (laughs) Yeah, where are you entrepreneurs? Yeah, they got the government contract, man, and the foods, foods too. Now this is raises another question here. You know, we had that food story with Daniel. You know. Daniel, Shack, and Benny, they, they wouldn't eat the king's table. There's, there's no hint or indication Esther and Mordecai are worried at all about the diet. But this diet is perhaps a little bit different than that of Daniel. Daniel was pressed into service as more of a religious, spiritual advisor and counselor. And that was a test to see where his covenant fidelity would be and his loyalty. This food, this food, and we don't even know if the test was the rest of his life or just that time of trial. This food is more to do to make the women more shapely. Again, they're coming from places that don't have quite as much food. And they're, oh, using food to this end. Relationships, though, that are based on physical attraction alone will bear bitter fruit. There's an old English proverb that one of the commentators cited. Beauty may have fair leaves, yet bitter fruit. Beauty may have fair leaves, but bitter fruit. Again, this kind of reiterates the principle before about External, external appearances and superficialities. The world values its highest good is appearance, aesthetics. It's really only skin deep. The world is passing away, and even as it's passed away, it's seduced by the fleeting attributes of estheity and sensuality. Now, when I say sensuality, I don't mean just the erotica kind of sensuality, but anything by which you are driven by your senses. The aroma of coffee in the morning next to a fresh donut. That is sensuous. Right? You're driven by your senses. Chocolate. It doesn't have to be just food. A roller coaster ride. Sitting in the rocking chair. Driven by your senses. Now, we're sentient beings, but we aren't to be controlled by sensuality. But the world is. Living only on the basis of that drive. Now, now beauty is a gift of God. Truly. But the definition of beauty, of course, needs to be his definition, and a biblical definition, not the world's. In fact, even, even our own society... Um, is much different in terms of its, its um, definition of beauty. And it's changed over the decades. In recent decades, um, thin, right? Waif-like, skinny. Well, that's not the Persian value. Give them food. Right? It, it, there's a relativism, a subjectivity in all of this. And yet, there is an objectiveness because beauty is rooted in the character and the nature of God. God is beautiful. He's the definition of beauty. Well, Philippians 4.8 tells us this. It says, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely... And on the list goes, whatever's lovely, think about these things. The word lovely there is a unique word in the New Testament, but it's a word that is used for beauty. Yes, think about beautiful things. Don't be lusty, but think about beautiful things that are pure. Notice how the the word right next to it is pure. Whatever's pure and lovely, beauty. Now, Back to our point. Beauty has its charms, but it's deceptive in a fallen world. Now, for the young women, the fine leaf of beauty has a bitter fruit of a life of exploitation, abandonment, and isolation without love. What do they get for being beautiful? Concubinage. The bitter fruit. For the king, the leaf of beauty in the young women is but the outer wrapping of the person. Their personality, their temperament, character, intelligence, humor. The leaf of the body may be delicate, but the fruit of her spirit may be bitter. Night after night, the king encounters a different woman wrapped in all of the outer accoutrements of supposed cultural charm, beauty of the outward body of a person. But every morning, morning after morning, he awakens to another dissatisfying and disappointing display of personality. This kind of lifestyle is disappointing. Now implicit <clears throat> and very subtle about relationships and finding love for us. The the modern strategy of serial dating and especially sleeping together in order to see if there's a chemistry is is really no different than Ahasuerus. His mindset, his value, his drive. Uh, Society thinks that it's civilized things by lessening the quantity all at one time. But again, the mindset and the thought process is very much the same. Well, now it may be maybe worse in a sense because now it very overtly is on both sides of the relationship. Women doing this to men as well as men doing this to women. Well, Good decisions, prudent decisions, avoid faltering in the faith as well as flaunting the faith. Since we have a hard time knowing exactly what the moral dilemma in character, we know what the dilemma is, but Mordecai, Esther, are they doing the right thing? Well, prudent decisions avoid faltering in the faith as well as flaunting the faith. Regardless of how Esther felt, she is caught in a circumstance totally outside of her control. Mostly. I mean, Vashti resisted the king. It cost her her, her job. And in this case, if, if a young woman would refuse the king, it might cost her her life. Mordecai gives, gives counsel to Esther. Don't, don't let anybody know that you're Jewish. Now, on one level, there's no problem. There's dealing with ethnicity. It's okay. it's okay for me to go around West Michigan and hide the fact that I'm Swedish and Norwegian and not Dutch. Until they see my name, of course, then it's quite obvious. Then I have to explain. There's nothing wrong with that. But, but to hide your faith, and, and this is where, again, our Eastern societies today still so um, enjoying politics and religion. So they look upon the United States and say, it's a Christian nation. Look how decrepit and immoral it is. Well, it, it is indeed decrepit and immoral in general, but we're not a Christian nation. It, it, we don't have a politic and, and a, a faith that's intertwined. Like here, the Jews, They're, they were a theocracy. You know, not even just a monarchy, not, a, not even a democracy. It was God ruling the people. And his law was their legal system. So this puts us in a, a difficult situation. You know, are they simply denying their ethnicity or are they denying their faith? There seems to be no outward appearance that they're any different than anyone else around them. They, they dress the same. They must eat the same way. They act the same way. Behave the same way. They have the same kind of names. They're no different. And nobody knows that they're different. Wow. Interesting. Now, on the one hand, neither do we want to flaunt our faith. We don't want to be like the Pharisees or the Sadducees that are just hypocritically proud and arrogant about their religiosity. Maybe, maybe it is okay to pray in the secret place. Uh, maybe it's okay to conduct ourselves to live so as to be unnoticed and yet noticed. Daniel and his three friends. Not quite contemporaries of Esther. A little bit before her, but same kind of situation. When you read through their narrative, they're faced with all kinds of arbitrary laws against their faith as Yahweh worshipers. Worshipers of the true God. But as soon as those arbitrary laws come up, they don't, they don't just go... Hey, King, I'm a Jew. I can't do that. Not going to do it. Can't make me. They, they, They don't flaunt their faith. They don't flaunt their religiosity, but they go quietly, calmly about their practice, about their way of life. Don't change their patterns and habits, which is a lesson for us as we reflect upon the last two years, maybe. They just went about quietly living their lives, not drawing attention to themselves, but By living quiet lives, it drew attention to them, and when they were confronted by the world with their convictions, they didn't deny them. Yeah, I do. Three times a day, I kneel in my room facing toward Jerusalem, toward the temple where God's name is, and I pray to Him and Him alone. King, when the flutes play, we're not going to bow, we won't bend, we're going to burn. So when they're, when they're asked about the reason for the hope that was in them, they give the answer. They don't hide. They give. But they're not looking for trouble either. I don't know exactly where Esther and Mordecai fall in here, but there's the same kind of tension that we find ourselves. Indeed, the New Testament is this ethic. 1 Timothy chapter 2 uh, And verses 1 and 2, the Apostle Paul says, "I, I really want you to pray. Supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings for all people, for kings and all those in high positions that we may lead peaceful and quiet lives, godly and dignified in every way. The reason we pray for national leaders is that we as Christians would be able to practice our faith Quietly and peacefully, and as a result, spread it around the world missionally. Not so we have a better life. We don't want to be like the Pharisees who flaunt their faith in public. Matthew chapter 6, several different places. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. Sound no trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and the streets. You must not be like the hypocrites. They love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they would be seen by others. Go into your room, shut the door, and pray to your Father who is in secret. So we don't want to flaunt our faith, but neither do we want to falter in our faith. And yet, we probably will do both, won't we? None of God's servants are perfect, save for the true servant, the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God. God's not looking for perfect servants. He sent one, Jesus. Mission accomplished. God uses faltering and flawed servants to fulfill his good and gracious purpose, he uses you. My goodness, he even uses a Xerxes. Shock and surprise. Now, the the silence about Esther and Mordecai in terms of the judgment of their faith, regardless of whether they knew what they were doing or they knew they were doing the best they could, making the right choice, or whether they even had the right motives. Regardless, God was working through their imperfect decisions and actions to fulfill His perfect purpose. That's from Karen Jobes. She's a a really good New Testament scholar at Wheaton. God's people aren't perfect, but His plan is. And He uses imperfect people to fulfill His purposes. Your compromises with the world don't disqualify you from serving the Lord. It may have an impact on when and where and how, but our gracious God all-powerfully, omnipotently works His perfect plan through us, us and even through wickedly powerful governors. So we can be confident. Now, the party, verses 16 to 18. Uh, Esther was taken to the king into his royal palace in the tenth month, which is the month of Teveth in the seventh year of his reign. And the king loved Esther more than all the women she won grace and favor in his sight more than all the virgins so he set the royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti and the king gave a great feast for all his officials and servants it was called Esther's feast and he granted remission of taxes to the provinces and gifts of royal generosity this is the fourth banquet already in Esther chapters 1 and 2 this guy likes to party big ones this word love it is the only time it's used in the book of Esther now we probably shouldn't get too romantic in our thoughts about the word love at this point because there's a bit of comparativeness in the wording don't you notice at least the way the English translates it he loved her more than the others Tell you what, if I told that to my wife, (laughs) honey, I love you more than all the others. (laughs) Uh, No, that's like slap in the face, or, you know, you're out of here. No, we shouldn't get too warm feelings about this yet, but it is a hint because by the end of the story, and I don't, spoiler alert, okay? By the end of the story, we're going to see. Ahasuerus is ferociously faithful to protect her and guard her. I think the word love here is on purpose and I think it's a clue. There is something different going on. And grace is this word chesed or your translations say favor. It is God's covenant love for his people. There's a covenant kind of love that Ahasuerus is now having toward Esther. It's. But what is genuine beauty? Genuine beauty radiates from the quiet spirit within a person. There's more to Esther than just a pretty face. Throughout this, we see her humility to seek counsel and take advice and actually do it. She takes the instructions of Mordecai and she follows through. She loves her cousin Mordecai who's taking care of her. She respects him. She respects Hegai the eunuch official. And she she takes the counsel. She she takes the training. She takes the ideas. And she advances. She knows how to learn. She's a good learner, a teachable spirit. There's so much more to Esther than a lovely appearance. There's something special about her. And know this, the inner person of the heart is where true beauty resides. Again in the New Testament, 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 3 and 4. Let your beauty be not the adorning of the external, the braiding of hair, the putting on of gold jewelry, or the clothing you wear. But let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit which in God's sight is very precious. This is what Christian beauty looks like God's favor, that is His grace, comes to us undeservedly from the overflow of His love. God gave this favor to Esther. And God moved the heart of the king to be favorable toward Esther. This is God's work. Though God's not named, he is the main actor through the whole story. But this favor isn't only for Esther or her alone. This is for the greater good of God's people with whom he has covenanted to love and to make them a blessing to the nations. Esther's position, though not fully known yet, will result in the good, in the deliverance of God's people. But we see a glimpse, already, tax cuts. Amen? (laughs) Tax cuts. And guess who's affected? All 127 regions, including the one in Jerusalem. Deliverance for God's people there. Yeah, along with the other blessing to the nations. The people of God fighting, laboring, eking out an existence, trying to rebuild the temple and the city are now helped. For Esther is in position. And this is just the beginning. Do you know this grace? Do you know this favor of God? Paul did. He had been a a violent man, persecuting the church. But he'd been called to serve the Lord. In 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 12, Paul says, I thank God who has given me strength, even our Lord Jesus Christ, who has judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief, and the grace of of our Lord overflowed for me with faith.